Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 32. The Pseudo-Community. Or, The Family Behind the Rubber Fence. For some, a horror. For others, the epitome of longing and security. The family. One thing is certain, however. For nearly everyone, the family is the social sphere contributing most to the development of one's identity and psychological inner life. In this respect, the family is certainly one destiny that will prove meaningful for a lifetime. Although psychoanalysts have often focused on two-person relationships, mother-child, therapist-analyzant, there have been a variety of different ways of exploring the depth psychology of the family. Like the study of romantic relationships, the interdisciplinary approaches of systemic and psychoanalytic modes of thought have also been fruitful here. In this episode, we would like to focus on a particular form of family communication that the psychoanalyst Lyman Wayne and his colleagues have conceptualized using the terms pseudo-community and pseudo-mutuality. This concerns family structures fraught with conflict and yet, to those involved, very difficult to break free of. Indeed, from the outside, these types of family structures are not necessarily easy to identify. Even the family members themselves may, too, find everything quite normal and matter-of-fact. And yet, communications within the family have something forced, something coercive and inherent within, something that is very difficult for everyone to grasp. Over and over again, violent conflicts escalate, threatening to rip the family apart. Yet at the same time, the family exhibits an extraordinary elasticity, indeed, a powerful force that swiftly erases fault lines without ever really resolving the conflicts in any meaningful way. Wayne describes how extreme manifestations of this family structure can cause a schizophrenic disorder. However, This correlation is highly controversial. The origins of schizophrenic disorders are surely far too heterogeneous to be attributed to specific psychosocial causes, nor is there any one single culprit to search for in the family. Moreover, pseudo-mutuality as a system of communication is far more comprehensive and widespread than any correlation to schizophrenia would have one believe possibly something found in every family to some extent or another, thus also making it a topic relevant to the general interests and experiences of everyone. As a social system, the family is interwoven with many social, interpersonal, and individual expectations, as varied as they are contradictory. This allows families to be organized around different focal points, as a place of security, of cohesion, of mutual support, of the perpetuation of traditions, but also as a refuge, a place for rehabilitation, or as a fortress to defend against the threats of the outside world, or only the perceived threats. Like in any community, the development and well-being of every family member depends on the family's ability to reconcile contradictory forces. One of the ideals of community 
may in fact be the ability to be together, to create a special connection where everyone has a secure place in the social fabric, while simultaneously accepting every individual's boundaries, their own distinctiveness, even their otherness. The ideal of human community may not be an absolute and everlasting harmony, the fusion of all people as one. It may instead lie in the principle of rupture and repair, to borrow a term from attachment theory. This means a kind of relationship that tolerates ruptures, differences, conflicts, and discrepancies, indeed, even draws on them as a means of development. Every change brings with it the emergence of differences, such as when a child in the family grows older, matures, undergoes changes, and increasingly makes claims to a separate identity beyond the family, which can certainly cause the family pain and sadness. But if the family is able to accept this change without forcibly preserving the old relationship model, then a new and more mature form of bonding can emerge. In this case, for example, the child is no longer dependent on the parent's continued care and attention, which may indeed represent a loss for the parents. If the parents can accept the child's development, however, then they will gain an adult companion with whom it is possible to have a completely different kind of exchange than was possible with a small child. Family structures, rife with conflict, often tend to regard such changes or differences as threatening, are unable to tolerate those individuals who break off and differentiate themselves from the group. Being different can mean being able to evolve, but it can also mean adopting ideas, ideals, and lifestyles that are different from those in the family, all of which is perceived by the family as an existential attack on its sense of community. In traditional family structures, for example, this can occur when a daughter marries a man with a different religious affiliation or rejects the traditional lifestyle. Families fraught with conflict and yet still not pseudo-communities may respond by trying to use violence or aggression to bring that person back into the fold. For example, with verbal attacks, never-ending quarrels, threats, even attempting to wield economic power, as in, I'll cut you out of the will if you do that, or even outright physical assaults. Or, if the family member does not yield to pressure by eliminating that person from the social fabric of the family, breaking off contact as a form of punishment or social extinction. The strongest advocates of this family order are often the siblings themselves, although they too suffer from the coercive nature of the family system, which they also very much identify with. Or the siblings may alternate roles, with the black sheep always being played by a new person trying to break away, only to be recaptured by the others eventually. Breaking away psychologically is actually an extraordinarily delicate situation, and rarely goes without suffering, even leading to a mental breakdown. This type of family structure, however, is still not a pseudo-community. One would rather speak of a clan family. In contrast to the pseudo-community, the clan family is very aware of differences and deviations and openly challenges them, openly 
communicates the requirement to belong and conform. In a certain way, this can be understood as a form of negative recognition, along the lines of, you are different, and you are not allowed to be. A very similar principle may well apply in the pseudo-community as well, but here it is subtly woven into communications. Deviations are not met with open hostility, but instead are tuned out of conscious perception. Reality is reinterpreted by the family group in order to preserve a sense of oneness, harmony, and unchanging membership. Reinterpreting conflicts and divisions always has the effect of pointing the arrow back at the family, is done so as to suggest that whatever is expressed by any member of the family is ultimately always an expression of their belonging to the family, even if it is difference that they are trying to express, thereby forming a kind of community which, however, is not built on genuine relatedness, but rather on a distortion of perception and communication, a pseudo-relatedness. In this context, Wayne speaks metaphorically of a family surrounded by a rubber fence, while in contrast, the clan family tends to operate with electrified barbed wire. Here, the boundaries of the family are elastic enough to avoid conflict, continuously appearing around any member of the family wherever they wish to go, as pliable as jelly or a rubber fence. One can ram into it, but never break through. Everything, every attempt to separate, is fed back into the family construct. The more a person tries to defect, or the more clearly a person falls out of the system of the family, for example, because of mental illness, the more crazed the system becomes. This means that the family members have to distort reality on an ever-increasing scale in order to keep the rubber fence standing. In extreme cases, until the family develops into a system that has almost entirely lost control with external reality. A family reality constructed out of its own inner reality. The members of the family usually feel that real connection is lacking. In spite of intensive contact, what remains is often unsatisfactory, unfulfilling. However, this sensation generates fear at the same time. The feeling that if the differences were indeed perceived, let alone voiced, then conflicts would erupt that would no longer be manageable, threatening the family and everyone involved with collapse, which leads to a further intensification of pseudo-contact. For example, by having to spend even more time together for even longer periods of time just to reassure one another. But the longing for connection, for a real sense that one is seen and understood, remains unfulfilled. The feeling, now I have enough, now I am content and satisfied, we can now depart feeling good, never arises. The hallmark of genuine connection is the ability to separate after being together, in the same way that actually being full means no longer continuing to eat. So how does the system of pseudo-mutuality function in the family behind the rubber fence? Wayne and his colleagues have identified a number of features, some of which we will now list. Number one, the excessive emphasis on harmony. The family ideal is harmony. 
Among the members of the family, there should be no contradictions or idiosyncrasies, and topics that might bring them up are avoided. Real experiences, such as from one's own work or school life, are likely to interfere, may in some situations be addressed, yet are of no real importance. Attention is instead paid to the togetherness of the group. The importance of the family is strongly overstated. It is not only something important for life, but becomes, as it were, the ideology of life itself, the very thing that gives life purpose at all. Here again, family does not stand for the development of each individual, but for the predominance of a sense of unity. The family is not the starting point from which to begin one's own life, nor the anchor point to return during crises, but rather nothing less than the goal for the development and movement of one's own life story. The interests of each individual are supposed to be secondary to this feeling, whereby part of the idea of pseudo-mutuality is that this, too, is precisely what each and every member of the family wishes, without exception. Number two, the full and complete integration of any deviation. It is unusual today, especially in socially liberal circles, to openly oppose anyone's desire to be different, such as a child's, for example. In the pseudo-community, by contrast, acceptance of everything the child does or wishes to do is often excessively overemphasized. Here, the basic principle, formulated from the perspective of the parents, is, we only want you to do what you truly want. In another communicative setting, this sentence may well foster freedom. In the pseudo-community, however, it is the devil in disguise. For what is also being said is, whatever the child wants was always already the will of the parents. It is simply impossible for the child to be different because the parents see the child's will as always identical with their own. But what if the child wants precisely what the parents do not want, so as to be able to express a bit of individuality? When confronted with such points of conflict, family communications bend back elastically, surrounded all the while by the rubber fence. Consent is expressed, yet, as we will hear in a moment, only conditionally. This approval is not supposed to encourage detachment or a separate identity distinct from that of the family, but instead is a strategy to avoid a conflict in communications. Number three, reinterpretation. There is nevertheless a tendency for communications to shift subtly in a certain direction. When, for example, the child turns against the family in anger and revolt, yet the situation is reinterpreted to rule out any expression of protest or any wish to deviate from the family. Instead, the problem is located outside the family, for example, blamed on the negative influence of friends. Or another meaning is given to their objections, such as, you don't really mean that. I know you actually mean something else. Or it may be inverted. What you just said is precisely what I meant. See, we don't actually disagree which may not be the case at all. Resignation and conformity are often what result. The impossibility of conflict, something that is even difficult to imagine. 
or a family member, say a teenager, is driven to ever greater extremes in search of the breaking point where he can distance himself from the family, form his own identity, while the family keeps trying to surround him with the rubber fence. Number four, masking. The family is kept constantly cognizant of its sense of togetherness. While any deviations are tuned out, for example, those family members who have developed entirely different identities, characteristics, and abilities beyond the family. Or certain changes are merely ignored, or remarks overlooked. It is also characteristic, however, for heated conflicts to erupt from time to time, which oddly enough lead nowhere. Conflicts and demands for change bounce off the elastic fence, which at first appears to yield but once the anger has subsided, stands just as it did before. The circumstances of the conflict may enable the dissenting person to pressure others into offering concessions or supposed agreements. However, these are only superficial. After the conflict has subsided, the supposedly new insights and knowledge are either forgotten once again as if the person had never said anything, or are fed back into the family unit as a symbolic gesture with no real substantive change. For example, when parents preempt future conflicts with the token formulation, yeah, yeah, I get you, your independence is very important. Or when the child's concerns, such as for separation, are formalized as a kind of family ritual, thus rendering them lifeless. Such as when a child who does not feel taken seriously is given a routine two-minute right to speak at the dinner table, or when a complaint box is introduced, something that children usually understand intuitively as serving to reintegrate them, and is thus something they rarely make use of. For the child, this situation only becomes more desperate. Indeed, it does appear that the child's desire for separation is being met with mutual agreement and understanding. Yet at the same time, this communicative deed only ensures that they are all the more tightly tied into the family fabric. Even language, the very words for marking difference, has been seized from them. Number 5. Hostility Towards Secrets by Perpetuating Secrecy This point concerns the way secrecy becomes duplicitous within the pseudo-community, again in the form of a split communication. On the one hand, Family members are granted their own space, along the lines of, you don't have to tell me everything, you can keep some stuff to yourself, privacy is important. If a family member takes them at their word, however, and actually carves out a space of their own that is not accessible to everyone, then the family reacts with fear and begins overstepping boundaries. And again, this is often done through subtle communication, i.e., not through open aggression or confrontation, but instead involving inquiries and enticements that are subtly leading, chains of argumentation that seem persuasive and quite rational, along the lines of, why don't you live with us? It's much cheaper. Or, why don't we take out a loan together as a family? That will save us taxes, and so on. And if that doesn't work, one can imagine things like, we well, don't talk anymore. I don't know anything about you. Often, however, differences are only expressed secretly, along the lines of, 
Well, actually, I don't agree with him, but I don't say it openly. It would upset him too much. But this only generates a great deal of doubt in everyone involved about what others really think and feel about them. That which is said, therein, the crux of the pseudo-community, is not necessarily that which is really thought, felt, or meant. Out of this uncertainty can arise something verging on paranoia. There exists a fear that someone else will secretly break away from the family after all, that they will be different, which is why family members sometimes find it difficult to refrain from spying and snooping evasively. Often family members find it very difficult to even mark off their own sphere, to keep something to themselves and for themselves. This is because interpersonal expectations and one's own thinking and behavior are already so often tailored to the needs of the family. While being unto oneself and keeping to oneself are burdened with feelings of guilt, what is truly one's own, such as unfathomable aggression and frustration, or a feeling of meaninglessness and uncertainty about one's own identity, often remains hidden in the unconscious, in dream life, in fantasy, or in seemingly irrational, inexplicable behavior. Number six, family myths and anecdotes. Often the family's ideals or the risks of deviating from it are handed down as myths. This, however, is not communicated in the form of direct admonishments. It is mostly something the family members are not even aware of themselves communicating them instead in the guise of casual anecdotes, stories, and advice. For example, stories telling of mortal dangers awaiting those who have dared to travel far away, to live a different way of life, or to embark on something unknown. Along the lines of, Aunt Emma once toured Chile and was attacked, almost died. She's had to take pills ever since. Or, Uncle Paul once tried to set up his own business, and the bank screwed him, and he went broke. He's still paying off the debt even today. Or Cousin Tim slipped into drug addiction after smoking one joint. The underlying message, if you ever do anything rebellious, anything out of line with the family, something so bad will happen that it can never be undone. So stay with those you trust and know, i.e. the family. It's dangerous out there. These stories are often under the spell of repetition compulsion, must be told over and over again, which is surely quite annoying to the children, perhaps because they intuitively recognize it as admonishment. Anecdotes from childhood are also typical, for example, by attributing certain traits to a family member as if they were some sort of unchanging constant ignoring the fact that these traits may well have changed over the years. For example, you were always a shy kid. Back in kindergarten, you always wanted me to come inside with you. Children react strongly to these types of stories without even quite grasping what is actually being communicated. Number seven, delegating to third parties. If differences do emerge in the family that cannot be concealed, through communicative strategies, then the conflict is often delegated to third parties. They are, however, not really supposed to act as mediators in the sense of guaranteeing 
the fair exchange of differences, but are rather emissaries of the family order who represent its interests or who have had the family's interests thrust upon them. For example, Uncle Henry will probably be very sad if you don't come to his birthday party. Instead of saying, I want you to be there too, or I'll be sad. Sometimes, family members willingly intervene as mediators themselves to apply pressure or to placate them without really resolving the dispute. The family forms an alliance against them just at the moment when they are in need of solidarity, for example, from their siblings. Deliberating about what has gotten into that person can even invest the other family members with a special sense of confidentiality, leaving the person feeling excluded in a way that is almost unbearable. Even though most everyone involved suffers behind the rubber fence, they reproduce it all the same because of their own deep longing and fear. In some families, this assignment of roles is fixed, in others, it alternates. Often the problem is such that even the dissenting individual identifies deeply with this family dynamic and has no words available to express their unease. This means that even though resistance is quite understandable, often it only finds expression in supposedly irrational outbursts or illness. For example, by developing psychological symptoms or forms of defiance, which, here repetition compulsion steps in, just reestablishes special closeness to the family once again. For example, because then the family really is needed to step in, to help, support, or rescue. It is particularly tragic when external third parties, such as doctors, therapists, lawyers, or police officers, allow themselves to be incorporated into the family dynamic by aligning themselves with the family against them. For example, when therapists are fixated solely on trying to treat the troubling symptoms. Perhaps even while in consultation with the other family members who the therapist takes to be behaving quite reasonably. The problem appears to stem entirely from the patient, in the language of systemic theory, from the symptom bearer. However, conjoling them back to normality amounts to telling that person to rejoin the family system a hopeless situation indeed, as it becomes clear that the rubber fence now also includes all those outside the family who were supposed to be helping. Once this structure has been internalized, it becomes difficult to see outsiders as anything other than emissaries of the family. A very familiar conundrum for therapeutic work with children and adolescents. Number 8. Delegating Guilt Scapegoat Mechanisms If a third person refuses to be used on behalf of the family, such as a therapist who is quite sympathetic with the desire for separation, they will quickly be scapegoated, for example, for trying to divide the family, or as someone incapable of helping anyway, or because they lack what the family really needs, or they will perhaps be immediately dismissed and demoted as an untrustworthy head shrinker. Or something similar. The perceived fractures in the framework of the family are then attributed to the corrupting influence of enemy aliens, outsiders. Or the symptoms that have arisen in the family are identified as some kind of hostile force disturbing the harmony of the family. For example, 
it's all because of his computer addiction. That is, if it were not for the addiction, the person would readily accept the harmony of the family. Then, everything would be okay. Addiction, however, especially with adolescents, is ordinarily a symptom of the family structure. But if a person resists in spite of all attempts at reintegration, or withdrawals into addiction and illness, then they themselves are at risk of becoming the scapegoat. All the family's problems seem to stem solely from this troubled person, with the family dwelling on them obsessively. Like all scapegoat mechanisms, this in turn creates a special bond in the family. The expulsion of one person serves to stabilize the whole system, which is why a black sheep is always needed in some families. Potential conflicts are usually lurking at the boundaries of the rubber fence, the breakdown of the family or of specific individuals. Mom will snap if you go on like this. Or the latent threat finally materializes and the pseudo-community is transformed into the clan family. Threats are made, accusations. Or they are made to feel guilty, given a bad conscience, along the lines of, What are you doing to us after all we've done for you? Open abuse may follow. Privacy violated, boundaries crossed. The violence latently locked up in pseudo-reciprocity becomes manifest. Beyond the rubber fence is not something else, but nothingness. This is what everyone fears. The rubber fence surrounds a community of fear, and the defector, who does not allow themselves to be reintegrated, is cast into this nothingness. Communications are then often cut, the person banished, contact negated, which can come from both sides. It seems that any new or different contact is impossible. Instead, there is only in or out. Therein lies something tragic, because in or out is often the only way in which the relationship can continue and develop. The reason it is difficult to break out of the rubber fence is revealing. It requires a great deal of ego strength and assertiveness, which, however, can be very difficult to develop for anyone with this kind of family background. The person who has left the family doubts their own perceptions. It feels like the family is an all-powerful force that may in fact be right after all. Often returning again and again to the family to take refuge, unconsciously identifying with the fear of not being able to exist without the family, of falling into nothingness. The longing for a family in which one feels seen and recognized for who one truly is must be maintained against all other experiences. New attempts are made, over and over, to find what is longed for in one's own family, only to be met again and again with the same incomprehensible disappointment. Often at work in such family structures is a transgenerational trauma, an experience of violence that drives the panicked and indeed traumatic fear. At one time, the danger, the deadly nothingness beyond the family, may once have been a real experience. Social stability is what is needed for the process of individuation, i.e., for an individual to detach and separate from the family. Whereas, in unstable societies, war or lawlessness, the only shelter is the family or the clan, 
beyond which there is violence, destruction, trauma. But as we have heard in our episodes on trauma, the fatal dynamic of trauma consists precisely in the internalization of violence, the so-called interjection of trauma, violence that lives on in the family through communication. Psychoanalytically speaking, the whole family is at the mercy of the same omnipotent object, which, because of fear, establishes a tyrannical order, an order that represents both protection and menace simultaneously, that on the one hand offers stability and on the other hand acts as a persecutor. As in other domains, change is only possible through understanding, through the gradual emergence of ideas, the discovery of a new language, and through a growing trust in one's own thinking and perception, for one's own identity to develop, for individuation, a protective space is often needed beyond the family, a space that is not accessible to the family, that can remain completely one's own, and this can certainly be a therapeutic space. And sometimes, the development of an individual member of the family can also be the impetus for the development of the whole family. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence. <laughs>